the Across the Pod podcast. We're here for something a little bit different today, as I am joined by now newly published author, Ben Isaacs. I'm your host, Andy, first of all, and Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. I mean, I've been following your work for a while, whether it's been on your stuff on Talk Sport, or whether it's your appearance on that Coombe show, or whether it's just your general Twitter work. It's always, um, I've always been looking at your work, so it's great to have you on and have you on the podcast. Thanks. I mean, I... I just love doing podcasts. I'll be honest. Um, so, usually, if uh, if it if it sounds interesting and I'm invited, and we're talking about something that I like, then yeah, perfect for me. Podcast podcasts are a massive reason why I why I wrote the book. Amazing stuff. And the reason we are here today is because of the book, which has been named The American Football Revolution, How Britain Fell in Love with the NFL, which is your new book that came out, I believe, last week. Is that right? Yeah, last week, although people started getting it the week before, people people were posting pictures on Twitter and tagging me in saying, oh, I'm looking forward to reading this. I hadn't received a copy at that point. So um, distribution, some places were selling it early. Um, Amazon, I think, had a kind of like on a sort of uh, a back order. Um, but yeah, I, Monday, Monday of last week was when it was officially, officially released. Amazing stuff. Uh, we are the main reason today is the book, but before we go into all of that, we're going to take you back years and years ago to your first discovery of American football. So, obviously, your book is all about um, your love of American football, and that's the theme of the book. But how did you first get into the sport? I just watched it on Channel Four one Sunday afternoon because I knew that it was this cool new thing that was around that I had no real concept of what it was. Um, and I was little, I was like six years old, but there was, there was something that had made me realize that this was a thing I'd probably seen. I watched a lot of TV in those days, so I'd probably seen ads and I thought, okay, this is something that someone like me should be interested in. And I watched it and I didn't really get it. And at that sort of age, and the, the thing is, is for anyone listening who isn't used to, who isn't old enough to remember when if you wanted to watch something on tv you had to be like okay well it's on at this time and if i'm not in front of the tv at that point i've got a problem at, at the age of six i wasn't with it enough to be like okay right well i've got to make sure that i'm sat in front of the tv at this time next week so it was just kind of in fits and starts at that point and i ended up watching some of super bowl 20 i was seven years old at that point massively irresponsible of my parents to just allow that to happen but I I watched some of that uh, uh, fell in love with the Chicago Bears but just to show how little I understood of what was happening I it wasn't until about a year later or the off it was the run-up to the next season the run-up to the 1986 season that I realized that the Bears had beaten the New England Patriots not the Miami Dolphins and I must have convinced myself it was the Dolphins because I knew the Dolphins had white helmets and the Patriots had white helmets as well at the time. But like, uh, I'm, I was watching the broadcast. The graphics would have been coming up. Like, <laughs> how much attention was I was I paying? But I remember ahead of the '86 season, there was um, I had one of the magazines like Gridiron or Touchdown, one of those, and it was it had a it had a recap of every Super Bowl, and I was so confused. Because I thought, okay, well, where's the Bears-Dolphins one? I can see the Bears-Patriots one. That must have been the year before. Where's the Bears-Dolphins one? And I and like eventually looking at the dates and realizing, huh, okay. Uh, I guess that wasn't the Dolphins. And from 86, I was then watching 
every week. I knew when it was on um, and it was appointment viewing for me at that point. But it took a little bit of time. It took, it took really did take a bit of time. And then, of course, you are well known as well, not just for your American football coverage, but your or the NFL coverage, but your college knowledge as well, which is your main sort of thing you bring to the Nakum show. So obviously you get into the sport in 85, 86, you start watching that. How does it then go from just watching the NFL to then going on to watching college football as well? So that kind of started with First Down, which was a weekly newspaper that launched, I think, in 86 and went through into the kind of 2000s. Um, and they would have pages of college football in the back. And I enjoyed re- I enjoyed reading about college football because it was like a kind of parallel universe. There was no way to watch it, but it were these different uniforms, these different helmets. Um, the University of Miami were really big at that point. Um, Vinny Testaverde was all set to be the first pick in the 87 draft. So there was so much about him. I became interested in the idea that, you know, the, the players that they were talking about on particular college teams would then get in the NFL. But my interest was basically just kind of reading about it and reading about the draft really until until the 2000s and the launch of NASN, North American Sports Network, which um, later became ESPN America. But it was the first time that we had regular live college football on TV. And just the more... The more football, the better, basically. And I, I enjoyed. I mean, a, a college football. Anyone who's been to a college football game knows that it's a more fun in-person experience than going to an NFL game. So, that really came across. I felt in the broadcasts. Um, I was playing the NCAA football games on the PlayStation and Xbox back in the kind of early two thousands, and they had one bit to kind of simulate the home field advantage in that so like i say college stadiums are much noisier than nfl stadiums where people are you know much more polite so in those in those older games you'd be able to kind of hype up the home crowd and the screen would start shaking and it made it more difficult for the opposing team to kind of call their plays and it happened the other way you know if you were on the road against the rival the screen was going everywhere and it was it was it was a fun little gimmick but helped kind of emphasize to me the difference between the two the two games and just kept watching more um listening to more podcasts and eventually i realized that i knew quite a bit not just about the players but about the general college football culture and realizing that people were taking more of an interest so once i was uh once i was watching a lot reading what i could and people knew that uh that i knew what i was talking about then people wanted to book me to talk college football as well um i'm just hoping i get to watch some this year i'll be honest um because it's not looking great the college football coverage in the uk right now pretty disastrous yeah that's what i was gonna ask about because we've seen the nfl uk community really grow and you know it's come point now where it's you know come one of the most popular sports arguably in the country i think it'll never be you know never beat our football probably won't be as ever popular as maybe cricket or golf but i think certainly it's really growing in terms of popularity in this country but why do you think that the college game quite hasn't taken off in the UK as much as the pro level well the play if you if you're looking at it from a like quite a clinical point of view 
NFL games are better than college football games. I think only people who are really into the NFL will also be into college. And that's not to say that people who are really into the NFL but don't like college, they're like, oh, you can't be a real NFL fan. I think it's just for certain people, they just they just want more. It's just it's like a, it's a side dish. I think for most people, it's really woven into the fabric of America. It's so college football was always so regional and certain parts of the world. It wasn't a big deal as by certain parts of the world, certain parts of America. It was not a big deal. And in certain parts, it was a it was much bigger than the NFL and still is much bigger than the NFL. And it's difficult for that to translate to the UK. And there's a, we can now access a lot of NFL coverage. So if somebody spends like 15 hours a week watching NFL games, um, you know, I'm talking about like Sunday, the primetime games, catching up on games. It's easy to do 15 hours a week. And if you're doing 15 hours a week of the NFL, I don't blame you if you feel like well, you don't have time for college. But college football is fantastic. And it is more for those people who are just, they just want that extra bit more or they're draft nerds and they like to be able to know what's going on ahead of the draft rather than just like, all right, okay, here's a bunch of, here's a bunch of random names. And obviously there's now an annual game in Dublin, which is fantastic. I've had people ask me like, you know, could this happen in the UK? Uh, my answer is always no. Um, and the reason for that is because the Irish tourist board and Aer Lingus put that match on in Dublin to bring American tourists into Ireland and to promote Ireland as a tourist destination. And the NFL games in the UK are not like that. They are to promote the NFL. It's to grow the game in the UK. The college football games in Ireland, which I love, they are not to grow the game of college football. Like, you know, the, the most recent game, Notre Dame Navy, it was difficult for anyone outside America to get tickets. Um, Notre Dame snapped up all of those. So I think there's a lot of reasons that college football hasn't been that big um i think it's been at a pretty good level recently people really enjoy talking about it and it's a it's a thing to watch on the saturdays but with the with the closure of espn player which was sudden and i've got i've got contacts at espn uk and the, they were absolutely devastated that the rug was pulled from under them um and of course tnt sports rather than bt sports now warner brothers discovery are not going to license content from disney the owner of espn so that means all of that espn coverage is gone from what was bt sports and they're not even going to show the cbs sec game of the week so i really <clears throat> i really fear for college football in this country now um for those people who are hardcore fans they'll find ways to watch the game you know, there's, we know that it's only going to take five minutes of searching and there's a particular game you want on a Saturday, you'll find it live on your phone, your tablet or your computer. But for those people who were sat at home and they'd realize, oh, BT Sport has got Alabama versus LSU on, I'm going to watch that. We've lost those. Like those people are not going to go searching for it on a, on a Saturday night. It was put in front of them. They enjoyed it, but most of those people had not got to the point where they were like, okay, well, I've got to, I've got to seek out this game. And it's, it's sad. I'm hoping it can change. Um, I know that ESPN would love to license that content to somebody else. I don't know who that would be. Um, Via Play is closing down. 
the zone has probably got its hands full, hands full with the NFL. So who knows what's going to happen? I'm sad, Andy. I'm sad. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I mean, it's even I, you know, I, I always, I always check the Gators results. You know, I've been to the College Hall of Fame in Atlanta, and I do have an interest. But I think what you're saying about the whole 15 hour thing, I think that's my reason why I don't watch it regularly is because I'm watching so much on the Sunday already, plus Premier League on top of that. Plus seeing friends, it's it's just it's just hard to um to watch all of it and consume all of it. So I think it's um there's only so many hours in the day, right? And yeah, exactly. Like we've got you know the phrase content guilt. You know we've all got subscriptions to so many different services, and we can barely scratch the surface of those, and we can start to feel a bit stressed that like oh should I be doing more with this subscription? Should I be should I be listening to more new music on Spotify? Should I be reading more magazines on Readly? Are there are there shows on Netflix that I should be on, et cetera, et cetera? So we can't we've always got more choice than we can ever fit in. So I can understand why college football falls down the pecking order if you're a big NFL fan, because you're probably watching a lot anyway. Yeah, exactly that. And but although I say that, I'm actually going to be hopefully, fingers crossed, going to a college game at Ohio State in November, because I'm going to be in Cleveland anyway, so I'm going to find a way. And I think they're playing on the Saturday before the Browns game I'm going to. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'll be able to go to that stadium. just looks incredible. Oh. 100,000 people, is it something like that? It just looks, yeah. it just looks absolutely fantastic. And I've always made my mission one day to go to an Ohio State game. Even though I'm a Gators fan, I always make it my mission to at least go to one game in my lifetime that involves Ohio State at home. Oh, I, I'm envious. Because that will be, I don't care who they're playing, that'll be an incredible experience. Um, such an amazing stadium. I was at um, Virginia Tech hosted Ohio State on a Labor Day Monday. So it would be, I can't what year it was, but they basically put a Monday night football game on for college football the week before the NFL season starts. So week one of the, of the college season. And Ohio State had lost to Virginia Tech the year before, but had won the national championship. So then week one, Going into Lane Stadium at night, it was an amazing... I mean, the, the atmosphere at Lane Stadium for Virginia Tech is one of the best in college football anyway. They come out to enter Sandman and the place just goes absolutely nuts. But to have that experience with a, with a big team coming in... I mean, once anybody goes to a college football game, they, you know, they, see, they see what it can be like. And I love NFL games. I love going to NFL games in the UK and in the US, but college football games are just next level in terms of the atmosphere in the stadium. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. That's one of the things that you certainly got when I went to the Hall of Fame in Atlanta. That's one thing you got. They show you a little, it's like a little cinema room where, I don't know whether you've been to it yourself, but it's a little cinema room where you get to watch like a, it's like a 10 minute hype video around college football, showing you the tailgate and the atmosphere and like the actual thing, like vibrates and shakes whenever there's a big tackle shown on the big screen. And I just got from that as well as people I know that have been to games, just how good it is. And I believe they're playing Michigan State, I think that day, I think the game is, so that should be quite a good, quite a good day out. Um, but of course, we are here to talk like the book. So, of course, um, I mentioned before, the title of the book is The American Football Revolution, How Britain Fell in Love with the NFL. I'm just going to read out the quick description from Amazon about what the book's about. So um, this book is a remarkable story of how the USA's biggest sport converted to the sceptical soccer mad nation. In 1982, an hysterical, uh, 
Then Esterick new TV channel started beaming NFL highlights into British homes and building up a small but devoted audience. Just as hooliganism was fuming people off the UK's national game, a year later, the Global Cup saw the Vikings and Cardinals play a flop pre-season game at Wembley. Now, 40 years later, the UK is the NFL's second home. The marketing muscle of the league played a part but it's the fans staying up late to watch on TV, creating their own content and booking holidays to the States to coincide with big games that have made a sport a hit. From the man who sold his home so he could fall, he could tour the NFL's tailgate parties to one who turned his love of the sport into an all-consuming passion for fantasy football, these are the stories of the fans who transformed the NFL from a curiosity to a mainstay in the British sporting landscape. I mean, it just sounds absolutely fantastic. I know Chris Milner's had a read of it and he's told me how good it is. But for you, Ben... What gave you the inspiration to write this book? The way that the NFL has grown so much in the UK and hearing people talk about everything from kind of UK players making it in the NFL to all the fantastic TV coverage we have now to Game Pass to the International Series. And the thing is, these are all these are all well and good, but they're they're nothing if the fans aren't watching if they're not buying the subscriptions if they're not buying the tickets and if you watch if you watch a game on a sunday and you're just a casual fan you might not think about the sport until the following sunday but that's not how most people are and the uk community has really especially since the since the dawn of the internet you know the way that people came together back before then was different there were fan clubs and all sorts of things like that but the way that in the more modern age the way that people have come together, creating podcasts, creating blogs, creating networks among themselves is a massive reason why the the sport just gets bigger each year. Like there should have been dips at some point, but there haven't. It just it just keeps going up. And it's so much of it is word of mouth because I don't think the average person who doesn't have an interest in the NFL is going to watch an NFL game just because it's on after a Premier League match on Sky. You know, just because they say, oh, we've got Broncos Jets coming up after this uh, Liverpool Man City match. Oh, well, I feel obliged to watch that, S- said no one ever. Like, it's the it's everything that the fans have done. And the fans just never seem to get enough credit. And I don't know if it's like a, a British thing where people don't want to kind of toot their own horn. They don't tend to really kind of want to sort of pat themselves on the back. So I thought, well, God damn it, I'm going to have to do it myself. And I started to worry that someone, someone not qualified might try to write a history of NFL UK fandom, because this isn't a history of the NFL in the UK. Um, there's, a, there's a book that's already out called The Special Relationship, which is about kind of the history of the sport over here, um, going back to like, like military teams playing, um, and Brit ball and all that sort of stuff. This is about the fan experiences. This isn't about the decisions the NFL has made. This is about the decisions every single fan has made. And my hope is, is that everybody who reads it will see themselves in at least one chapter, that they'll relate to at least one chapter. And I made the decision right at the beginning to not just write it as a chronological history of like, okay, well, here's 82 when Channel 4 launches and puts American football on and no one knows what it is. And to go from there, what I decided was I needed more fan voices. So each chapter is from the perspective of a specific fan. 
And all those fans I spoke to are kind of stand-ins for everybody. So there'll be lots of old school fans who will read that very first chapter and be like, oh my God, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly my experience. That's how it was for me and going along to those first games at Wembley, et cetera, et cetera. So I was just worried that someone would write it who didn't really have the fans' best interests at heart, um, wanted to make it more about them or, I don't know, the NFL's kind of like bigwigs who have been great and have done so much for the UK, but it's the fans. It's the fans that have done it. And the, the book is kind of like my my love letter to anybody who's ever made any sort of sacrifice to watch the NFL, whether that's sacrificing sleep, sacrificing money, whatever, you know, that's the reason I wanted to write it. Yeah. You mentioned there about, you know, there's a chap that maybe speaks to everyone and I'm reading the description about you said the one who, who sold at home so he could tour the NFL tailgate parties. And that's one I'm really intrigued to read because I myself last year did three months in America, did 21 NFL games. So I'm, um, you know, looking forward to seeing what his stories are in each place compared to mine and sort of see whether any sort of similarities arise, any sort of what his descriptions were. And I'm just intrigued to see the whole book, first of all, but also that, that particular chapter because I'm just intrigued what someone else had experienced like myself from all the stadiums he went to and all the tailgate parties. God, and, for, and for anyone who's only been to NFL games in London and they've been to what the NFL calls a tailgate party uh, at London, please note that is not a tailgate party. That is not even remotely a tailgate party. That's some food trucks. Um, when you go to a tailgate in America, whether it's college or pro, it is, I don't think anything enhances the stadium experience more than tailgating before the game. And I felt like people in the UK did not really know much about tailgating for quite a while. Um, and the, the fact that obviously somebody did sell their home, basically told his girlfriend, right, I'm selling my flat and I'm going to tour America. The sacrifice that someone has to has to make to do that. And that's because they experienced one tailgate. Like that was that was the effect it, it had on them. And I feel that person helped kind of spread the love of tailgating uh, across the UK and became kind of a, a no pun intended, like a, a real source for that sort of information because that that wasn't out there and he said that he's he's always now even getting people contact him saying oh you know can you help me figure out how to get to this tailgate and which tailgate should i go to and you know he didn't think that when he went off and did this that all these years later he would be just still answering questions helping people find the right tailgate oh and you make me hungry i'm blaming <laughs> you for this i've i the 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 food I've eaten at tailgates has been fantastic and and things I've drunk like you know I've drunk moonshine oh, at southern God. tailgates, oh. which is always interesting um tailgate with Keyshawn Johnson once wow. um who was um was wearing an Ohio state jersey I think his son or his nephew or something was playing at Ohio state um but tailgates are amazing. Even if you come away with nothing else from this book, uh, go to a tailgate. Go to America and go to a tailgate. Now, you mentioned before that you've been to games in America, uh, both NFL and college base. What would you say has been the best tailgate you've been to in person in America? 
which means uh, base or which which area which which has surprised you the most, which has been the best. I'm 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 biased here because I'm a big Chicago Bears fan, and tailgating outside Soldier Field, um, something I'd had to set up um, for a story I was writing. It was I think because I, when you go to a tailgate, you are accepted like they everyone is welcome at the tailgate. But because I was a Bears fan from the UK, the warmth that I felt at that particular tailgate was just something special to me. Um, You know, growing up as a kid, I'd always wanted to go to Soldier Field and it wasn't my first trip to Soldier Field. It was my first time tailgating at Soldier Field. And I thought, my God, why why did I not do this before? And there were people from that tailgate I met who I'm still in touch with. And yes, I was drinking alcohol at about 8 a.m. because that's what happens at the tailgate. And yes, I was then working in the press box about <laughs> five hours later um, because I am such a professional. But, you know, it was part of the story. So I couldn't have gone to that tailgate and not consumed alcohol. It's a good point. It's a good point you make. I mean, I was surprised by Cincinnati's tailgate when I was there. I mean, it's, um, you know, ones like the Chiefs and all that you expect to be good. You sort of, that's what you're expecting. But I think I was really surprised by Cincinnati's how good that tailgate was. I thought that was maybe one of the best, maybe the best, if not one of the best I went to. Um, did they have that that terrible Cincinnati chili that they put on spaghetti? Or was it like actual proper tailgate food? Because when um, I think of Cincinnati food, I think of their terrible chili. I think if you didn't experience any terrible chili put on spaghetti, then you didn't have Cincinnati chili. And I think you say <laughs> Sky Skyline chili. I want it. I want to say it's called. Okay. Uh, sorry, Bengals fans, if you've gone to Cincinnati and enjoyed that type of chili, but yeah, not for me, thanks. I think I burgers made. I was with Dolphins fans when I was there. You know that that was good in itself. And I I'm not really a spicy food guy, so I probably just would have stayed away from the chili anyway. <laughs> Yeah, for the best. Um, now, in terms of the chapters you wrote, was there maybe one that you enjoyed writing more than the rest? Was there a particular chapter that you really, really enjoyed writing about? Oh, making me single someone out—that's uh, that's pretty <laughs> cool. But I, I do, I do have an answer for this because it was quite a selfish one. Um, the chapter where I speak to Dan Turl about the the merchandise and memorabilia that was around in the early days, which was a, a big a big factor in kind of driving growth, especially among kids at that point. I just, it was so nostalgic for me having that conversation with him. And also he was, out of everyone I spoke to, he was the most useful to me because he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of that era, say 82 to 92. In fact, he's got a Twitter account just dedicated to stuff um, from the UK from American football uh, within those 10 years. So there were so many things I was able to say, okay, well, look, am I right in saying this was a thing? And he'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. You're getting mixed up with this. Or he'd be like, yes, um, that's long forgotten. And he'd be able to go through these old magazines that he's got. And we were figuring out exactly how many NFL teams did the, did the NFL sell merchandise for in the UK during the 80s? Uh, up until the early 90s and it was something like 12 teams so if somehow you'd been watching channel four and you'd picked a team there was a chance that you were not gonna be able to buy anything 
that the NFL was not interested in selling any of that any of that merchandise, which is you know unfortunate. You know, if someone's decided, oh, I'm a I'm a Buccaneers fan. You're not buying anything. We're not gonna. We're not gonna have caps. We're not gonna have t-shirts. It's just, you know, so knowing and being able to get like scans of these magazines that there's not many of them still left to be able to make sure that I was getting particular details correct was very very satisfying. Like everyone I spoke to, I could have spoken to for many hours more than I than I did, but Dan Turl's the only one who I've had to go back to while doing other chapters so I can check certain details with him because he's he's just got it all in the vault and he's got every magazine that I could ever need to access. That is fantastic. Uh, I mean, like any author, like any sort of thing in life, some things go wrong in life and they're worth that. So at the moment, people getting flights to certain countries or you know anything like that. So did you encounter when writing this book any any issues or any sort of potential banana skins that could have really affected the the writing process? Um, certain people were more difficult to pin down um, and find time with. So I didn't ever plan to kind of just write it in the order that it's in the book. It was a matter of finding the particular person and being able to speak to them. And once I'd, once I'd done the interview with that person, I wouldn't interview anybody else until I'd finished writing that person's chapter. I would live in that chapter. It was an important part of my process to not be going back and forth. I wanted to be in that era, in that person's life for the duration of, of that chapter. And certain people, it was just hard to, hard to make our time sync up. So there's somebody who was in a very different time zone and the other person, just because he's so busy, um, was Nat Coombs. And I think that was the last chapter that I did. That chapter was actually written in 2023. Everything else was written in 2022. So that was the final one. I want to say we did it kind of like right at the start of January so that I could so I could meet my deadline. Um, but that was, that was it because everyone was so eager to be involved. Um, Finding a publisher was much easier than I expected. I I wanted to go with Pitch because they're the biggest independent sports publisher in the UK. They've published a couple of other NFL related books. And I'd I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna submit the idea to them. And even if they say no, then I'll hopefully get some good feedback for whoever my second choice is gonna be. But by the end of the day, I'd signed a contract and we were we were ready to roll so it's it's all been surprisingly smooth the process of writing it and getting it out was surprisingly smooth i just i just hope that getting it in people's hands and people enjoying it hopefully that's as straightforward uh, as the rest of it was and so how long did it take you roughly to make from start to finish how long would you say the process was in months or years um it was i think 13 months Okay, and it was it was a pretty steady process. There were certain points where, for weeks, I didn't do anything on the book because I there was a particular uh, interview that I was waiting to do, and that I was focusing on that one. And it was only kind of at the end where I was starting to get worried about, oh, am I going to hit the deadline? And I wrote it and thought, okay, well that's great. The deadline's not for another week, and I realized, oh, actually, I'm a month out. Like the deadline's a month away. So, 
yeah, 13, 13 months. And it was, it was pretty easy doing it in 13 months. I, I could have done it. I could have done it in a shorter period of time, but the plan was always to release it um, in August, 2023, no matter when it was finished. Okay. Um, before we do go, a couple of questions for you. Um, as a Bears fan, quick prediction for the season ahead. Um, if we can get near 500, I'll be very pleased. Um, I can imagine a seven and 10 season. If, if Justin Fields and the offense show they can really do something, even with a patchy offensive line and the defense cannot be a disaster, even with a patchy defensive line, then the arrows pointing up. I think they're a year away from troubling the wild card. So seven, eight wins is probably to be expected. That'd be progress from you of three wins a year before that. Mm. You know, bring DJ Moore as well. That will only help Justin Fields. Maybe do like a Josh Allen with Stefan Diggs or Jalen Hurts with AJ Brown sort of elevation to his game and put him as one of the best in the league. And then finally, just for you, sort of a prediction for the future. What what do you see for the future of the NFL UK fan base? What's your sort of prediction for just maybe five years, ten years time? Just where you see the the fan base and the NFL their status in the UK being in that in maybe five, 10 years time. I think it's, it's not going to plateau, but it's not going to go up massively because I don't see us getting a whole load of extra games. I don't see there being an NFL franchise in London. My hope is, is that we'll get some kids who've come through the NFL Academy in Loughborough who get to major colleges and get drafted. And I think once we see, homegrown players knowing that they've come through a system set up for kids in the UK. Once we see them in the NFL, I think the NFL can then take its next step in the UK because people will start looking at it in a different way. In the same way, lots of European countries will look at NBA basketball, knowing that the best players from those countries can graduate to the NBA. The NFL is very different. It's much harder to get in. You need that coaching from an early age. NFL Academy can hopefully do that and it might be that rather than more international series games that really hate help fans take the next step and its status as a really established sport over here absolutely and i really hope that it does make that progression but that is where we'll end the podcast for today so first of all thank you ben for coming on oh my pleasure um so before we do go let the audience know where they can find your book um you can find it on amazon wh smith um, bookshop.org you can find it at pitch publishing um you can get it everywhere basically but please if you read it and like it read a, a write a review and write a review on amazon that is massive reviews on amazon are massive to generating further sales and making people aware that there is a full nfl uk scene out there amazing and if you are listening or watching on youtube make sure you do that but in the meantime this has been the across the pod podcast and we will see you guys for our next episode 